When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, hello, nerds. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, Liv. She whose love of Euripides grows 
greater every day. He is so cool and interesting, and I, I love him desperately. Enter this re-airing episode. Plus, it times really well with next week's. As always, I do my best to limit re-airs, but frankly, as I've mentioned, I'm going to be traveling and I've spent the last many, many weeks writing like 15,000 words per week in order to prepare episodes in advance, but there were just too many episodes needed and I only have uh, so much time in the day. So instead, I decided to take advantage of the love I have for Euripides in this moment, the love spurred on by Alcestis and by my conversation with Ellie Mack and Roberts, and to share that love in the form of this re-airing, because what is better than Euripides' back eye? Absolutely nothing, that's what. And thus, here I am with those two episodes in one, somehow from all the way back in 2019 already, how has it been that long? Time is a flat circle. I'm putting both parts of this play, two episodes, into one so that I'm not re-airing twice for you, but you get it all. But because of that, I won't bog you down with more of an intro. Let's dive right back into Euripides' bloodiest, most ugh, visceral, and perhaps his most iconic tragedy, the Bacchae. This is episode 61, Punishing Pentheus, the Frantic and Violent Women of Euripides' Bacchae, Part 1. Dionysus, Bacchus as he's often called, everyone's favorite drunken god. Many different women of mythology are credited with being his mother, depending on where you look. Some say it's a woman named Dione, some Io. Even Persephone and Demeter can be claimed as Dionysus' mother. But of course, the most common story is the one I told you so, so many episodes ago now. But let's just recap it, shall we? Because it's been a while. Cadmus and Harmonia, king and queen of Thebes, and two of my all-time favorite characters of all of Greek mythology have many children together. One is named Semele, which means moon. Her story, as so many are, is intertwined with the sexual escapades of Zeus. He comes upon Semele, and as is his way, he wants to have sex with her. So they start a so-called affair. One I hope is consensual, but it isn't clear in the source I'm reading now. And although important, this really isn't about that part. It's about the child they have. When Hera finds out that Zeus and Semele have been together, she does as Hera often does. She looks to punish the woman in whatever way she can. I often paint Hera as being particularly awful for how she handles these things, but I do think we also have to realize that it's likely all she could do to take out her hurt and her rage. If you're married to the king of the gods, there isn't much you can punish him with, but I imagine you'd feel as though you simply must punish someone. There's no divorce in ancient Greece, let alone the mythology, and Zeus is going to continue to do what he does. Hera needs a release somehow, and sadly, it ends up targeting these women all too often. Hera comes upon Semele, who is six months pregnant, disguising herself as a neighbor woman. This strange woman convinces Semele to request something of this mysterious man she's been having a relationship with. You see, he'd been disguising himself every time he'd seen Semele. She didn't know much about him, and this neighbor woman makes a good point. She has the right to ask him to reveal himself. She is, after all pregnant with his child. Semele does this, she asks her lover to reveal himself, and though he refuses at first, Zeus does eventually reveal himself to Semele. 
There are variations on how and why he does because he knows full well what will happen, but he does, and Semele either bursts into flames or is hit with a lightning bolt, because a mortal cannot look at the true godly form of an Olympian, or, well, one of those things happens. Semele dies, but Hermes saves her unborn child and sews him into Zeus's thigh so the baby can continue cooking, because that's Greek mythology. Eventually, the child is born of Zeus, and this child is Dionysus, or Bacchus, as he's also called. Sometimes this means that Dionysus is attributed with being only the child of Zeus because he's the one who births him, but of course, that's patriarchal bullshit. He's the child of Semele, the mortal child of Cadmus and Harmonia, and of Zeus, the man who fucks literally everything up. It isn't enough for Hera that Semele has died because of her. This child is still an issue. So when Dionysus is born, Hera calls upon some of the Titans. I'll be honest, sometimes it's hard to track chronology here, so I don't know if these are Titans before they're imprisoned, or if it's just ones who didn't meet with Zeus's wrath. Either way, she calls on some Titans. Dionysus is born horned and crowned with writhing snakes, and he's able to transform himself Dionysus isn't your standard child or even your standard god baby. Dionysus is something else. This is shown throughout his stories, but most obviously in the way he's born. Not everyone has horns and a crown of snakes. The Titans take baby Dionysus, and despite everything special about this child, they're still able to rip him to shreds. Where the blood falls, a pomegranate tree sprouts and these ripped-up shreds are placed in a cauldron. But before the Titans can do anything further or call upon Hera to do whatever it is she's planned next, Rhea, Zeus's mother, comes upon what's happening and takes the pieces of baby Dionysus and puts them back together, bringing him back to life. He's then given to Persephone for protection. She brings him to a king and queen, Athamas and Aino. There he's to be raised amongst the women slaves, to be disguised as a girl himself, all in an attempt to keep him from being found by Hera. But of course she isn't easily deceived. Hera finds out about this, and she drives Athamas and Aino mad, causing Athamas to kill his own son, thinking he's a stag in the forest. The childhood and even young adulthood of Dionysus is full of dramatic stories. There are more, even, but we'll need to save those for another day. Dionysus is fascinating because he's one of the few gods who actually goes through childhood. Many of the others are born into adulthood or were simply never told about what they experienced as children, leading us to believe they're fairly benign childhoods, if they happened at all, but not Dionysus. <laughs> Let's now take a moment to talk a bit about Greek drama. It's not only important to this story because what I'm about to tell you is a Greek tragedy, no, also because everything about Greek drama was in dedication to the very god I've just told you about. Dionysus is the god of wine, revelry, and theater. Every year the Athenians held the Great Dionysia, a festival of theater. It was held in the spring, and while ultimately a festival devoted to theater, it was also incredibly political. The Athenians prided themselves on their democracy and their theatre, and all of the latter was for Dionysus. The festival always began with a procession for the god, there was libations and sacrifices, and a statue of Dionysus was installed in the theatre, called the Theatre of Dionysus. 
on the slopes of the Acropolis. I've been to the ruins. It's magnificent. The tragedies were performed over three days, with three poets each contributing three plays. Each would also contribute a satyr play. There were judges, and the dramatists were awarded first, second, and third place. If I could choose to go back in time and could only pick one place and one time to go in the whole of human history, I would go back to one of these festivals. We have so little left from what they did to these events, but my god, they must have been so incredible. Just imagine what you'd be witnessing in this ancient world, the stage direction, the props on stage, some of the things they used to like bring people in from above. <sighs> The actors were, of course, all men, but they also wore masks. Variations on what we now know of the masks of comedy and tragedy, you know, the happy and the sad. Those concepts are based on Greek drama. Imagine those masks. The stories being told on the stage. The choruses, the singing, because much of it was sung. Anyway, I could go on. It must have been unbelievable. Now, with this background in Greek drama and how the plays were performed... Let me now tell you about a particular play, the one we're here for, by my favorite Greek dramatist, Euripides, and which was a favorite of none other than one of Rome's more famously horrific emperors, Nero. Nero loved this play, he who played the fiddle while Rome burned. Says a lot about what's to come, I'd say. Our play opens in Thebes, in front of the palace, the Cadmion. Founded by Cadmus and Harmonia, the city is now run by Cadmus's grandson, its new king, Pentheus. Cadmus is still living, but he's given the kingship to his grandson. Dionysus appears. He explains that he's arrived here in Thebes. He's a god disguised as a man. He's speaking to the audience, but also to no one. He stands in front of a smoldering tomb, the tomb of his own mother, Semele, still smoking from her death at the hands of Zeus. Though, as Dionysus rightly points out, the death was brought on by Hera alone in her rage and jealousy. Dionysus explains where he's come from, what's led him here to Thebes. He's traveled the world, he tells. He's been to Persia and Arabia, to the Lydians and the Phrygians, all of Asia Minor he's traveled, spreading his Bacchic rites and traditions. In Ann Carson's version, Dionysus explains who he is. He says he's not a god or a ghost, not a spirit, an angel, a principle or element. He explains that there isn't a word for it in English, that the Greeks said daemon. Dionysus has, quote, set Asia dancing by bringing his mysteries to the continent. But now, here in Thebes, he's introducing his mysteries and rites to Greece for the first time. He's come to thrill. Quote, here's what you'll need. A fawn skin, a thyrsus, and absolute submission. My mother's sisters are the reason I'm here, Dionysus explains. They deny that I'm a child of Zeus, that my mother, Semele, was with the king of the gods. They say that she was seduced by only some mortal and that she lied and said it was Zeus to distract from her transgressions. My mother's sisters say this about her, and they say it was all devised by my grandfather, Cadmus. My aunts gloat, telling everyone who will listen that this is the reason my mother was killed by Zeus, because she claimed to have been with him. 
This is why I'm here, Dionysus explains, why I've driven these women from their homes and into the mountainous forests around Thebes. I've driven them mad. They dance through the forest in a frenzy, all these women of Thebes. This city must learn that they have no idea what it means to be initiated into the Bacchic rites, that they have no idea what my Bacchanals entail. I'm here to defend my mother, to speak on her behalf as her godson of Zeus. Or, as Ann Carson translates, he's here to have the people of Thebes, quote, call me the son of Zeus and call me a daemon. This is how the character of Dionysus opens Euripides' back eye. He's a god on the stage from the start. I think it's also important to note the difference in Dionysus versus the other children Zeus has with mortals. His other children, if they're godly at all, are demigods, heroes with minimal powers, if any. Dionysus is a full-blown god, one who eventually takes his place amongst the Olympians. He's one of the most widely worshipped gods, one of the most important Olympians, yet he's the son of a mortal. It's a fascinating differentiation. Also, as Emily Wilson notes in the introduction to her translation, and we know how I feel about her, Dionysus' reach in terms of worship and daily life in ancient Greece was far greater than the other Olympians. His cult of worship connected with women and the poor more than any other, because the wine partying, the frenzied dancing was something everyone could experience. It was, as Emily Wilson explains, quote, the most widely available route the Greeks had towards out-of-self experience. Of course, for the same reason and his connection to the other, to the East, the so-called barbarians, he was also dangerous to the patriarchy, to the status quo, and to ancient Greek society. Dionysus continues his speaking, to the audience, but again, also to no one. Now the city of Thebes has Pentheus as its king. Cadmus has given it up to his grandson, a man who is against me as a god, who doesn't include me in his prayers or libations or sacrifices. This is why I'm here, to prove to the city of Thebes and its king that I am a god. And, he continues, if the Thebans try to remove their now Bacchae women from the forests, I will go to battle with them with my maenads by my side. Dionysus leaves, returning to his followers, those who came to Thebes with him, and those he's collected from Thebes itself. In his wake, his chorus of Bacchants, more followers, sing about the god, his history, how he brought them to where they are. When the chorus has finished, Tiresias, the blind prophet we know from so many other stories, mostly taking place in Thebes, enters the stage. He's dressed as one of Dionysus's Bacchants, his maenads, with a fawn skin over his shoulders and a thyrsus, it's a ceremonial reed wand. He asks for Cadmus to be called to him, to be told Tiresias is looking for him. Cadmus arrives, he's dressed the same way, he explains they've agreed to do this together, to promote these Dionysian rites, to wear the costume of the gods together. He is my grandson, after all, Cadmus adds. How amazing it is to feel young, Cadmus explains. The costumes they've donned for Dionysus have brought them youth again. Tiresias confirms he feels the same way. These old men are young. The two men prepare to leave Thebes, to find their way to Dionysus and his maenads in the forested mountains outside of Thebes. They're the only ones from the city planning to join the gods, they both note, the only ones with any sense. 
The god will lead us to where they are, Tiresias says, and Cadmus tells him he will act as the eyes, since Tiresias can't see. But before they can leave, Pentheus arrives. Cadmus sees him coming. He's rushing. He seems excited. At first, he doesn't see them. He's distracted. He has a rant to give about the women of Thebes, how they've run off to worship this false god, this strange man who's arrived from the east, saying he's some god, some daemon called Dionysus. All these women are doing is drinking wine and slinking off with men. It's a disgrace. All for this fake god and his fake rituals. It's impossible, Pentheus says. There is no god. Semele, my aunt, was killed by Zeus for her lies, and her child was killed with her. Pentheus explains that he's already locked up some of the women who abandoned their homes to worship this god in the woods. They're being watched in the city's prisons. Others, though, he's still trying to capture, like his own mother, Agavi, and his aunts Aino and Atanui. They're in the woods somewhere, worshipping this nonsense god from the east, this foreigner. Finally, he sees Cadmus and Tiresias. He's surprised, but he finds it comical, these old men dressed up as worshippers of this strange new god. What are you doing? he asks. You're trying to placate this nonsense? You're trying to feel young again? Must be you, Tiresias, who's convinced my grandfather to do this. Let me translate this a bit. The biggest concern Pentheus has with the importation of these Bacchic rites into Thebes is that the women have been drinking a lot and that in that intoxication, they've found a new kind of freedom. They're not being confined to their homes, something that was incredibly freeing for ancient Greek women because that's where they were all the time. They're out in the woods with their friends and lots and lots of wine. They're being free with their sexuality. It's a bacchanal. And it's threatening to the men in charge to have their women finding this type of freedom, any type of freedom, to just do whatever the hell they want outside of the home where they're not being controlled. Pentheus is willing to risk this being a real and true god that he's not worshipping appropriately just to defend his own power and masculinity. He must be a false god because a real god wouldn't give women any of this kind of freedom of their sexuality. Tiresias is measured in his response. He's trying to help Pentheus. You have no idea how big and important this god will become in Greece, Tiresias tells the king. Just as Demeter feeds us with dry food, keeps us alive, this god, Dionysus, feeds us in drink. He's the god who invented our wine that frees us from sadness and brings us sleep at night. There's no other cure for what we humans face. Just wine. Wine brought to us by this god. Dionysus. Wine is super important, you guys, and that's why I'm enjoying a nice glass of red as I record this episode, because how could I possibly tell this story without it? Tiresias expands upon the power and importance of Dionysus beyond the vitality of wine. There's a bit more. These Bacchic rites also bring prophetic abilities, he tells Pentheus. When the god comes upon a person, they're able to see the future, things they couldn't see without him. Tiresias has more to tell about just how wide-reaching the power of Dionysus will become throughout Greece. Tiresias is, after all, a prophet himself, and a famous one. He explains that Dionysus will be worshipped throughout, including at Delphi itself, He's trying to help Pentheus, to convince him to worship this god as he should, not to continue to deny his existence and the character of the god's mother. It's a dangerous game that Pentheus is playing. 
You should worship him as the god he is, Tiresias continues. But either way, Cadmus and I will be doing just that. We've dressed in the costume of the Bacchants. We'll properly worship this god and give him the reverence and respect he deserves. Cadmus agrees, reminding Pentheus of what happened to his cousin, Actaeon, when he didn't properly revere a god, Artemis. He was torn apart by his own dogs. But Pentheus isn't listening. He doesn't want to hear what these men are telling him. He calls upon the Thebans to find this man who's wandering around spreading the news of this mysterious god, who Pentheus says looks like a girl. Tiresias and Cadmus realize there isn't anything more they can do to convince Pentheus of something he doesn't want to be convinced of, so they leave, noting that they will do their best to convince the god not to punish all the Thebans for Pentheus's actions. Meanwhile, the chorus sings of these decisions by the three men, and once again of the story of Dionysus. They call upon gods and sing of Dionysus and the Bacchic rites that he's just brought to Greece. Pentheus's guards have found Dionysus. They bring in the god, who's not bothered at all, explaining it wasn't hard to find him, nor to tie him up. He just held out his hands and said, it's fine to take me. They've brought Dionysus to Pentheus, but they also have to tell him that all the other women he'd captured, well, they've gotten away. Their shackles simply fell off, and the prison doors just opened, all on their own, the guards tell Pentheus. After a little frustration about what he's lost, Pentheus examines this man, this seeming mortal who's brought these Bacchic rites to Thebes from a far-off land. Well, he says, you're not bad-looking. To a woman, that is, he makes sure to add. Something we'll find more and more obvious here is that Pentheus is a bit repressed, either in his sexuality or gender or both. Where do you come from? he asks Dionysus. How did you learn these rites? Dionysus tells him that he comes from the east, from Lydia, the city of Sardis, and that it was Dionysus himself who taught him these rites, the son of Zeus, Remember, he's disguised himself as a mortal here. Is there a Zeus from where you come from that makes new gods? Pentheus asks. No, Dionysus responds. It's the same Zeus as here, the one who lay with Semele, he makes sure to add. Pentheus continues to interrogate him about how he knows these rites, what the rites are all about, how he supposedly learned them from Dionysus himself. He doesn't want to believe any of it, of course, but Dionysus, disguised as this mortal, holds true to his story. Is Thebes the first place you've brought these rites? Pentheus asks next. All of the barbarians know them now, Dionysus says in answer. By this he means that he's taught his rites to all of the east, everywhere in that region that isn't Greek. As I've mentioned y'all before, barbarian doesn't mean what we use it to mean now. It simply means people that aren't Greek, typically to the east, because that's the region the Greeks knew of where non-Greeks lived. So Dionysus means that he's taught everyone else before finally bringing his rights to the Greeks. None of this serves to convince Pentheus of anything, though. He continues his interrogation and threatens Dionysus with whatever he can think of before finally locking him away for infecting the women of Thebes with this so-called madness that is really just a bit of agency. As Dionysus is locked away in the palace's prison, his chorus of Bacchants sings once more about their god. Hearing them, he calls out for their help. 
The earth shakes on his request, shaking the palace and threatening to bring everything down. But it doesn't. Instead, Semele's tomb flares up. The chorus of Bacchant's panics, but before long Dionysus himself, though still disguised as this mortal, walks calmly from the palace. He tells the chorus how he freed himself with the help of the god Dionysus who tricked Pentheus into believing he was tying up this man when really he was tying up a bull. (laughs) The fire at Semele's tomb, Dionysus explains, was also the work of the god, and it distracted Pentheus and he fled from where he'd brought Dionysus to be tied up and locked away. So many lies did the god put into Pentheus' head that he exhausted himself wielding his sword in defense of his palace and himself, and instead tore his own palace to the ground in his confusion. Meanwhile I, Dionysus as this mortal continues, walked calmly and freely from the palace, and here I am. As Dionysus is explaining this to his followers, Pentheus once more exits the palace. He's looking for his prisoner, before realizing there he is, free and not even trying to get away. They argue how this is even possible, Pentheus still refusing to believe there's a god involved. Dionysus really doesn't care what Pentheus says at this point. He's sick of this man and his inability to believe in what is right in front of him. Before Dionysus is too fed up, though, a messenger arrives with news of the women of Thebes, the Bacchants, up in the mountains. I've seen the women in the woods, he explains. There are three groups of them, led by your mother, Agavi, and her sisters, Aino and Atanui. They were peaceful when I first saw them, he explains, not drunken like you've said and not flaunting or throwing about their sexuality like you've warned us about, Pentheus. They were just lying on the grass, quite calmly, serenely even. But, the messenger continues, when your mother, Agavi, heard the sounds of cattle nearby, she stood up and awoke the rest of the women to do the same. This is where things get good. The women that leapt up at Agave's call were old and young, married and not. They let their hair loose down their shoulders, flowing freely. They tightened up their fawn skins around themselves. Some wore snakes wrapped around their bodies, licking at their cheeks. Some held animals of all sorts, even wolf pups. In their arms, the new mothers in the group nursed these animals with their own milk. Some use their thirsty to stab into the earth or into rocks, creating streams of water and even wine that erupted so that they could drink from them. Others dug into the ground and drank the milk that poured out as they did. Honey dripped from other thirsty. They had everything. The messenger finishes this part of the story by telling Pentheus that if he'd seen it for himself what this messenger just witnessed, he'd be treating this god with all the respect he could muster rather than trying to imprison his follower. He explains that they'd been trying to hunt for these women, on Pentheus's orders, when Agave had come upon him and attempted to have the other women work together to tear him to pieces. He was able to escape, if only just. When we'd escaped, the messenger continues, we watched as the women and the girls turned their attention to the cows and the bulls of our herd, one by one tearing them all to bloody shreds before our eyes. Then, the women turned on the nearby village, taking on the armed men of the village without any weapons of their own. They took the children away with them and escaped every defense the villagers had. Even fire didn't burn the women. Women, quote, did these things to men.
The messenger finishes telling his story to Pentheus by once more emphasizing that they must worship this god for what he is. His power has been proven. Plus, he says, what would we have without wine? Without wine, we wouldn't have Aphrodite and the sex she brings us. Without wine or sex, what is the point? When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
the god Dionysus has returned to Thebes. Of course, he's not telling anyone that he's the god. For all they know, this man is a priest, a devotee of Dionysus, the one who's bringing the god to Thebes, here to convince the people of Dionysus's importance, how vital it is that they worship him. Dionysus has already convinced the women to do exactly that. Whether he's convinced them or they're under a little bit of a spell, it's a little bit unclear. The spell will come in later. He has a whole slew of followers, though, maenads or bacchants, whichever you prefer to call them. These women out in the forested mountains having a good old bacchanal, drinking wine, hanging out, really enjoying themselves. Sometimes they rip cows to shreds. You know how it goes. Pentheus, though, current king of Thebes, is not convinced. He's stubborn and doesn't want to be told that the women can be right about anything. No, he doesn't believe that Dionysus is a rightful god. He wants to remove all the maenads from the mountains, imprison them in Thebes, and stop this worship in its tracks. Even when a messenger arrives to tell him what the women have been up to, to explicitly convince him that he must worship this god... Not even when his own grandfather, Cadmus, and Tiresias, the blind prophet, come to convince him. No, Pentheus isn't going to be convinced of Dionysus' legitimacy. This is episode 62, Ripping Your Family to Shreds, Euripides' Bacchae, part 2. The messenger has come to Pentheus, tells him all he knows about this new god Dionysus and the women that have left the city to follow him, in addition to those that arrived with him, and Pentheus remains in disbelief. Like I said, he just can't be convinced. When the messenger finishes his story, finishes trying to convince Pentheus that Dionysus is incredibly powerful, he isn't a god to be ignored... Pentheus then notes only that the women's actions are the real problem, that they must all be captured and imprisoned, that he won't be treated this way by women. Meanwhile, Dionysus, though in disguise, is still there, and he too has tried convincing Pentheus, though he's sick of it now. He simply warns him against removing the women from the mountains, where they're now holy to the god Dionysus. It will only serve to anger the god even more. Pentheus is getting more and more angry, though he's blinded by it. At this point, he notes aloud that instead of sacrificing to the god, he'll sacrifice the women themselves, that they deserve it. This is quite significant because human sacrifice was not a thing in ancient Greece. Euripides is making the point that Pentheus is losing his humanity. He's gone too far as he tries to deal with Dionysus and his maenads. He's becoming a tyrant, if not worse. But he isn't beyond saving yet. Dionysus offers him the chance to make things right, to redeem himself for how he's chosen to handle this thing he sees as a threat. He tells Pentheus that he won't be able to defeat these women, that their wands will defeat the bronze of the soldiers' weapons. Pentheus thinks that's laughable, so Dionysus offers to bring the women to Pentheus so that he may back his threats directly. But Pentheus only sees this as Dionysus mocking him, so instead... Dionysus offers to take Pentheus to see the women. This Pentheus is into. Dionysus offers to bring Pentheus to the women, and Pentheus absolutely wants to go. He tells Dionysus that he'd give an awful lot to see these women in their new place in the mountains. 
Pentheus's motivations here are interesting. Is he afraid of the women? Intimidated? Jealous? Interested? He's so many things here. He wants to lock them up, but it's not entirely clear why, except that they've found this new kind of freedom that doesn't involve men. Of course, this would be threatening in itself, but Pentheus is also very obviously fascinated by these women, and that's what seems to be taking over here. Dionysus can't help but ask why Pentheus is suddenly so into seeing these women in action, when just moments ago all he could think about was imprisoning them. I want to see them drunk, he replies. It would be so shocking, so awful. Women, drunk? The horror! Okay, I added those last two bits. Dionysus, rightly, confirms that Pentheus would like to see something he's just said would very much offend him. Yes, that's right, is the reply, provided I can hide in the trees and avoid their notice. You won't be able to hide. They'll find you, Dionysus counters. Hmm, you're probably right. Why don't I lead you there, Dionysus proposes. Do you want to try? Yes, Pentheus replies, getting more excited. Please take me there. I can't wait. This is when one starts to question Pentheus and his intentions. Here. Dionysus says, handing Pentheus a piece of clothing, put on this dress. Dionysus explains that the women will kill Pentheus if they discover a man has infiltrated them, so he must disguise himself as one of the women. This continues, the costume getting more and more elaborate. Dionysus provides Pentheus with a dress, a wig, and all the trappings of the other maenads. While excited at first, Pentheus becomes a bit wary as the details keep getting added. I can't dress as a woman, he says finally, but Dionysus is adamant. The women will kill you if you fight them, he says. Dionysus explains that he'll bring Pentheus to the women via secret pathways so that Pentheus isn't seen. And eventually, Pentheus leaves the stage, entering the palace where he explains that maybe he'll go inside and arm himself so he can go up against the maenads alone. Or maybe he'll go inside and do as Dionysus suggests instead, dressing up as one of them. When Pentheus is gone, Dionysus lets loose his plan. He's speaking to the chorus, the Bacchants, those women he's had with him all along. These foreign women who traveled to Thebes with Dionysus for the express purpose of spreading his godliness. But of course, he's still in disguise as not the god. So he speaks to Dionysus himself. This disguised Dionysus calling on the god. Now it's time for him to do the work. Drive Pentheus mad, Dionysus asks of his god-self. If he's sane, he'll never go along with it. Never disguise himself as a woman to sneak up upon the maenads in the mountains. No, drive him mad. I want him to be laughed at by all the Thebans. He deserves it after all the threats he's made to the maenads, to the god Dionysus himself. I'll get him in the dress, and in it he'll go to his death at his own mother's hand. Then he'll see the true god Dionysus, son of Zeus and Semele. After a while, after the chorus has sung their ode, Dionysus calls into the palace, calling out Pentheus. Let me see you, he calls out. Let me see you dressed as a frenzied maenad, just the same as your mother and aunt. So Pentheus exits the palace. He's dressed up as the women in the mountains with all the trappings of the maenads he's so recently tried to lock away. He looks just like his own mother and his aunt who've been off in the forest getting drunk on wine. The issue here seems unclear. I don't think that it's necessarily that he'd be laughed at for dressing this way, 
perhaps it is. I mean, this is a dark patriarchy, but it's also that the women would have control over Pentheus, dressed up as one of them. When Pentheus is outside, he's seeing double. Not only that, he asks Dionysus if he's grown horns. You look like a bull now, he says, or did you always? The god Dionysus is working his magic on Pentheus, just as planned. The god is near, Dionysus in disguise tells Pentheus. He's on our side now. Dionysus helps Pentheus adjust his outfit, a lock of hair out of place here, a bit of dress adjustment there. You'll see me as a friend when you see that the maenads are perfectly sane, Dionysus tells Pentheus, if perhaps a bit ominously. Pentheus' attitude changes more and more as he and Dionysus discuss the plan. He becomes more enamored with the idea of the maenads and of dressing up like one of them. What they're doing up in the mountains, the freedom and power they have, it's infectious. He begins to get a bit envious. But all the same, he still plans to hide and spy on the maenads, at least at first. He's still a little afraid of them, not helped by Dionysus pointing out how important it is that Pentheus not show the women who he really is under the disguise. His ego begins to grow, believing he can see these women, what they're doing in seclusion, where they believe no one's watching. He thinks it will make him more impressive, more powerful, more manly even. He starts to plan the triumphant return to Thebes after he's seen them, how he'll parade himself through the city, having experienced the Bacchic rites of the now-famous maenads of Dionysus, and come back to tell the tale. This part Dionysus doesn't love. He's tolerating Pentheus because he has a plan, but he's getting annoyed, to say the least. But Pentheus is off in his own little world in his own mind now, even Dionysus tries to imply, if not outright, tell Pentheus what he has in store for him. I'll bring you out to see them, he says, but someone else will bring you back. My mother, Pentheus replies. The Maenads will make entertainment of you, Dionysus tells him. You will be carried away in your mother's arms. To all this, Pentheus keeps interrupting. He doesn't understand what Dionysus is saying, or he thinks he does, but he's very much misunderstanding. You're spoiling me, is his final reply to Dionysus's comment about being carried away in his mother's arms. Dionysus says in response, quote, a kind of spoiling. Well, I deserve it, is Pentheus's reply, if he only fully understood what he was saying. He does deserve it, what's coming to him, what Dionysus has in store. Pentheus exits the stage then, but the chorus sings about what's happening, though we in the audience don't see it. Run, go to the mountains, they sing, where the daughters of Cadmus dance together for their rituals. Drive them to madness against this man dressed as a woman who spies on the women as they dance, hidden away in the trees. His mother will get him first, will spot him where he spies. She'll bring the others. Who is this man, watching us, following us? She won't know who he is, will even question who the man's mother could be. Not a human mother, she will accuse. The chorus sings of death, how it doesn't wait for excuses. Honor the gods, they sing. Let justice kill the man with no god, no law, no righteousness. The chorus sings to Bacchus, to Dionysus, asking him to come to them to ensnare this, quote, maenad hunter, 
Give him over to the women who worship you, to your maenads, to their Bacchic rites. Finally, a messenger arrives. He tells the chorus that Pentheus is dead. The messenger is distraught, mourning his king. The chorus, meanwhile, are thrilled, much to this messenger's dismay. They couldn't be happier, and they tell him that. Quote, the wicked man is dead. He died on his wicked quest. Tell us, how did he die? They ask the messenger. So the messenger tells the story, where they went and what they did when Pentheus exited the stage last. We went deep into the mountains, he says, following the path. Finally, we came upon them, the women, the maenads in the forest. They were making their wands, singing their Bacchic songs, a whole group of women. But Pentheus couldn't see them. He told us he needed to get up higher, into the trees, to get a better look. The stranger, he says, referring to Dionysus in disguise, he did something magical then. He reached up and pulled the highest branch of a pine tree down. He settled Pentheus on the branch and let go. The branch sprung back, bringing Pentheus high into the sky, perched atop the highest tip of this tree. But from the highest point of the tree, Pentheus could easily be seen by the maenads. Suddenly, the stranger had disappeared, and the voice of Dionysus calls out. "'Ladies,' he called, "'here is the man who laughed at us, who mocked our sacred rituals.'" For a moment, the women don't know where to look. But finally, Agave, Pentheus's mother, sees him first, and then the rest see him in this tree. They throw rocks at him, but they keep missing. Finally, again led by Agave, the women get together at the trunk of the tree, and... They bring the tree down. Ah, the power of women and a nice glass of wine. Unstoppable. So Pentheus is on the ground with his mother above him, frantic. She's not herself. He tries to show her who he is. He takes off his disguise, calling out to his mother. It's me, Pentheus calls. It's your son. Please don't kill me, he calls to her. But she can't see it. She can't really see anything. Dionysus has Agave's mind completely. She doesn't know who is there or what she's doing to him. She's described as foaming at the mouth, her eyes rolling around in their sockets. She is not herself. Agave rips out her son's shoulder, tears his arm straight out of the socket. Pentheus's aunt, I know, is at his other arm, tearing away the flesh. Autonomy, his other aunt, and the other maenads grasp at him, taking handfuls and pulling... Flesh tears off in chunks, their nails are covered in blood. Slowly, Pentheus is ripped to shreds by his mother, Agave, his aunts, Aino and Etanoe, and the rest of the women of Thebes, driven mad by Dionysus in his rage against Pentheus. Pentheus's body is strewn about the grass of the forest, pieces torn away, barely anything bigger than Pentheus's head which his mother, Agave, stumbles upon after the frenzy. She takes it and fixes it to the top of her thyrsus, her wand, her symbol as a bacchant of Dionysus. Agave runs through the mountain, leaving behind her sisters with the other maenads, before she arrives in Thebes, still with the head of her son on the end of her thyrsus. She calls to Dionysus in her victory. They've won, she says. Quote, you shared the hunt with me, you share the prize. The chorus sings of Dionysus' success of the death of Pentheus before Agave herself is on stage and speaking with the chorus. 
She has her prize, and she's excited to show these other maenads, these women who have followed Dionysus to Thebes. Look, she says, I caught this lion cub, all on my own. She holds out Pentheus's head. Where did you get it? they ask. The mountain, she says, Kitheron. Who killed it? they ask. I did, she says. I won the prize, but all the daughters of Cadmus helped in the hunt. The chorus continues to press Agave to test what she knows about what she's done, but she thinks it's an animal she's caught. She points to its young, soft hair. She praises Dionysus, Master Hunter, and the rest of the maenads and how he told them what to do. She asks for praise of the chorus, and they give it to her. But they ask about her child, Pentheus. Agave says yes, he'll praise her for this hunt too. Agave, returned from her hunt, holding the head of her dead son on the end of her thyrsus, is so excited. So excited to show off her prize to the chorus and to the people of Thebes. And so she does, still thinking she's killed this animal. So proud of herself for killing this animal. She calls to the people of Thebes, telling them how she did it, how she and the other daughters of Cadmus killed the beast without the weapons men use without javelins or nets. No, she says, we did it with just our nails, our sharp, pointed nails. The deed is ours. I caught this beast with my own hands. We tore its limbs apart with our own hands, she tells the people of Thebes proudly. Where's my father? she asks. Slaves, she says, go get Cadmus and Pentheus, my son, where is he? He must nail this lion's head up there on the palace, on the frieze, this prize on display for everyone to see. Finally, Cadmus arrives on stage. Slaves are with him, carrying a corpse on a stretcher, though it's covered with a sheet. It's the body of poor Pentheus, Cadmus explains to the audience. I had to search for the pieces, looking long and hard. There were so many scattered so far apart. He's heard about what his daughters did, he says, for he'd left the maenads and returned to Thebes with Tiresias before any of this had taken place. But he heard about it, so he went back up into the mountains to bring down the body of his grandson, of Pentheus. There he saw Atanui and Ino, still in a frenzy, and he heard about Agave, too, how she'd gone mad and returned to Thebes. Then he sees her. He hadn't before. Cadmus sees his daughter, Agave. He knows what she's just done, though it isn't clear if he's seen the head on her thyrsus quite yet. Agave, though, is still very much under Dionysus' spell, and she's proud of what she's just accomplished, thinking she's taken down a lion with her bare hands. "'You must be so proud of your daughters, father,' she tells Cadmus when he sees her. "'I've left behind the loom. I've done greater things. I've hunted with my own hands.'" She's so proud for doing something that women didn't do, something meant for men. It's tragic, really. It would be such a feat for her if it was an animal she'd hunted— but it wasn't. Now she shows her father the head on the thyrsus, proudly. It's her trophy for the hunt. Wouldn't you like to hold it? She asks, being unknowingly morbid. I'll hang it up in your house. Cadmus doesn't quite know how to handle this. He sees what she's really holding. He tells his daughter he must weep for her and for himself, that Zeus has destroyed them all. Agave responds, saying, quote, Old men are always grumpy, and that she hopes her son will grow up good at hunting, taking after his huntress mother. 
She tells Cadmus that it's his job to give her son good advice. And wouldn't someone go get her son, anyway? It's just beyond tragic at this point. As Euripides tends to do, he's drawing out the tragedy, the pain, and the suffering. Agave goes on and on about her son, about her accomplishments in hunting. All the while, the audience is watching her, knowing what she's done, what she's holding in her hands. They have to just wonder when she'll realize. Cadmus, to his credit, realizes that she has no idea what she's done. You'll feel grief beyond all other grief when you realize, he tells her. Look up at the sky, he instructs. Stare at it for a moment. She does this, and when she looks back down, her expression is altered. Now, he asks, do you still feel it? Agave's mind is readjusting, slowly. She doesn't realize anything at first, but then she acknowledges she does feel things changing a little. So Cadmus quizzes her on her life, who she married, what she named her son. Finally, he asks, Whose head do you hold in your hands? A lion's head, she replies. Look at it again, he asks, carefully. Cadmus, honestly, is handling this brilliantly. He's my favorite for a reason. His daughter has just committed one of the most atrocious acts imaginable, but he cares more about getting her back to herself so she can understand than punishing her. He knows she'll punish herself enough when she knows the truth. And now, she does. She looks at the head in her hands, closer, carefully. Then, she says that, quote, I see horror, agony, I see my ruin. Finally, she knows she's holding her own son's head, but she doesn't know how or why. Who killed him? she asks. How did his head get in my hands? Cadmus is blunt, though he does tell her in the most caring way he can. You killed him, he replies finally. You and your sisters. He tells her that they were possessed, that they'd been made maenads. He explains that Dionysus had been insulted, and that's why he'd done it. He explains that Dionysus had been insulted by her and her sisters, that they didn't believe he was the son of Semele. That's why he'd done it. Then he shows her where the rest of Pentheus is, on the stretcher he's brought in with the slaves. Cadmus laments his family, the horror they've seen, cursed. His only male relative, torn apart by the boy's own mother, Cadmus's daughter, on the same mountain where his grandson, Actaeon, was torn apart by his own dogs after he spied on Artemis bathing. Yeah, they're all related. This founding family of Thebes is more than a little cursed. Semele killed by Zeus after sleeping with him, Actaeon torn apart by dogs, Pentheus torn apart by his own mother. Finally, Dionysus reappears, but he isn't in disguise now. This is the deus ex machina of the play, God in the Machinery. Dionysus appears from the palace roof. They're always up high. The Greeks had a whole stage set up for this. The plays were written for it, and the theaters made for these moments when the gods appear from above. He's there to finalize this curse on Cadmus's house. You and your wife, Harmonia, will become serpents, he tells Cadmus. He tells of a prophecy that Cadmus and Harmonia will drive an ox cart with a vast army. They'll sack cities. But when you reach Delphi, that's where you'll find yourselves doomed, never to return home. Your wife is the daughter of Ares, and because of that you'll be protected and will live forever amongst the gods. 
I'm telling you this as a son of Zeus, Dionysus tells everyone below. If you hadn't refused to see me for what I am, you could have had me as an ally instead of this. Cadmus and Agave say their goodbyes. They lament their fates. But what can they do? They have to be exiled from Thebes, even if a god hadn't just arrived to tell them exactly that. They leave, each exiting at different sides of the stage. Dionysus, as the god in the machinery, is brought upwards, off the stage, and away. The Greeks had full mechanisms in place in their theatres to bring the gods in and out, as if by some godly magic. This play, this playwright, Euripides, he has my heart, truly. His plays are so incredible, so visceral. I'll take this opportunity to once again recommend you listen to the Medea episode of Deviant Women that I'm on. That play, too, is Euripides, and we give him due credit. It's very interesting. His works are brilliant, the most violent and tragic, and honestly, the most dramatic in the true sense of the word. He is an icon. Euripides had died before this play was able to be staged. He'd been living in Macedonia, and he died there. A relative of his found the play and Iphigenia at Aulis, another of his plays, in his things after he died, and they staged the play at the next year's festival in Athens. They say that Sophocles, himself near death by that time, wore a black cloak of mourning to the festival for Euripides. He wore it when he watched this play being staged for the first time. Euripides was awarded first place posthumously. Quite the way to go out, a farewell performance by one of Greece's most incredible playwrights, one who wasn't nearly as appreciated then as he is now. He only won first place four times, this was one of them. Everything that makes his work my favorite, and a favorite of us today, is what made him a little too much for the judges at the theatrical festivals that were staged every year in Athens in honor of Dionysus. Ugh, nerds. As always, thank you for listening. This is one of my all-time favorite plays. I think about it all the time, particularly after last year when I spoke with Emma Polly about the idea of a non-binary reading of the Bacchae, both in the character of Dionysus and Pentheus. Fucking fascinating. Emma is amazing. But also just, man, I am so into Thebes as a location, so into the idea that Athenians used Thebes as this way to air their grievances, to look at city functions without specifically looking at Athens. It's also fascinating. Fucking love Greek tragedy, as I have said so very, very many times recently. Ugh, and Euripides, he just has my heart. So go ahead and re-listen to that episode from last year with Emma Polly. If you're interested, they are brilliant, completely brilliant. Um, But also, I do have uh, some new things in the works for June, so stay tuned. Next week, I'll be looking into the story of Pentheus's grandparents, my favorite characters of all Greek mythology ever, the subjects of my deepest obsession. So stay tuned. 
Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, taking on more all the time, research for a new and upcoming series, among so many other things. She is indispensable. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. She has been so helpful. We have an intern this month. What the fuck? How cool is that? Grace Roby hasn't started by the time I'm recording this. I'm so sorry, Grace, but I am certain she's going to be so helpful working on lots of different things for the podcast. You'll hear more soon enough. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. I am Liv and I just so, so, so love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy. 
but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.